Wonderful. Uh, so my name is Celine Schillinger and I'm based in France. I'm a French national. I grew up there, but then have explored the world uh, quite a bit. I lived in different countries, worked in the corporate environment for several decades. And a few years ago, four years ago, came back to France, set up my own consulting firm and wrote a book. Uh, what, what else? I'm married. I have two kids with my husband. Uh, Gustav is about 16 and a half, almost 17, and Violet is uh, 12 and a half, and um, we're having fun together. Welcome to Leaders and Managers Hub, Celine. We're delighted to have you here. Thank you very much for joining us. Mm, thank you, Ray. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Celine. It's lovely having you with us. Thank you, Anna. Further to your introduction, do you want to tell us a little bit about your backstory? How, you know, how you came to sort of be that international traveler, worker, what your experiences were, where you were, what you did, please? Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. As I said, I was born in France. I was born from parents who are both art teachers. They met in art school and uh, I'm the eldest of three daughters. Uh, I studied in France in my hometown, Bordeaux, political science, and then went on to study communications because I was interested in the corporate world, joined the corporate world and stayed um, the first 10 years in small, medium-sized companies, went to Asia. I was attracted by Asia. Actually, I left my country at age 23 um, to look for a job in Vietnam and settled in a Vietnamese family, learned Vietnamese, found a job um, and lived the most uh, exciting experience uh, as possible and then moved on and had another, took another job in China. Well, so basically the first 10 years of my professional life were spent in a very entrepreneurial, very you know, fast moving, everything is possible kind of environment. And then um, after 10 years, I felt like returning to, to Europe and doing something different. And I, I came back to France and joined a large pharmaceutical company. I joined their HR department originally because they were interested in this international experience. But for me, it was uh, so it was almost like a double culture shock, uh, joining the, the large enterprise, something I was not used to, was full of processes and like uh, there was a whole vocabulary I hardly understood. Uh, I was uh, I was not used to people speaking that way, you know, uh, matrices and processes and all that kind of stuff. Mm. And um, and also joining a an environment that is I had not realized in the beginning how constrained it is you know it's for good reasons huh? the pharmaceutical industry has to comply to very strict standards but that it shapes behaviors internally in ways i had not 
anticipated probably during my review you know interviews i was a bit naive i think and then progressively i realized how conservative this environment was how um, innovation adverse uh, it was in fact huh? and uh, this was something i I felt I started to try to deal with it and say, well, okay, you know, that's, I, I just need to learn and adapt. But then I sort of realized gradually, it took me a while, that this was actually detrimental to the company and to employees as well. I felt the talent, the, the potential that was here in that organization was not fully leveraged. And one of the manifestations of that was in the lack of diversity, the, the extreme uniformity in profiles who were selected and promoted and rewarded, you know, the kind of behaviors that was rewarded was an extremely compliant kind of behavior. I would say to a point it was uh, as if reliable mediocrity felt better than uh, wonderful surprises, <laughs> mm. you know? Mm. And, um, and so I felt uh, gradually more and more constrained in this environment to the point where one day <laughs> something happened. I wrote a letter to the CEO of the company, the new CEO of the company, and bear with me, that was not the kind of culture, the kind of company where you could, you know, write to your CEO and everything was okay. No, it was, totally not uh, uh, not encouraged, huh? yeah. I would say. But I did that anyway, and to suggest we do more for diversity and for innovation, and we, we create a, a culture or we evolve the culture so that the company feels better, is better in tune to, with the customer base it is supposed to serve, which is more, more and more globalized and, and female and uh, uh, in developing countries and so on. And um, my letter had no response from the CEO. So that was in 2010-11. It got nowhere, no response, but the letter became viral. It was forwarded. I had forwarded it in the first place to three friends of mine. And they forwarded it to other people who did the same and so forth. And in a single day, I got like so many messages coming from people I didn't even know. I had never met. I didn't know who they were. I just knew it came from inside the company. They were colleagues. But it felt as if this letter had crystallized something that was in the air or there was a, a common concern that people had not even realized that was common, probably. And that letter put words on what they felt as well. And so we decided to, based on all this, this energy that started to emerge after this letter, we decided to, a few of us decided to get together and do something about it. We thought, you know, this lack of diversity, this lack of innovation, maybe it's not deliberate. Maybe we can help. Maybe we can contribute instead of just, you know, waiting and, and complaining. And that was the beginning of a movement, an internal movement, but a positive movement, not a, you know, revolutionary, um, oppositional movement. No, something where we built together proposals and we connected and we learned together. We, we searched for information, we exchanged it, we 
decided to try to use this internal social network, which was here, but nascent, that was not really used at that time. And, and this thing became bigger and bigger to the point it gathered almost 3,000 people across 50 countries. It even expanded, spilled over beyond the boundaries of the company because uh, people in other companies felt interested and asked to join. And, and it lasts a um, bit more than a year and a half, almost two years. At some point, the company uh, decided to, I mean, we became so visible uh, that the company could not ignore us anymore and um, invited us for a dialogue and then invited us eventually to co-create with them, with HR, with uh, the CEO, ways to evolve our, our company. We felt that was amazing. And I, for me, that was a real aha moment. I realized the power of the collective the power of engaged collectives and why were we so engaged? Well, I think it was because we were free. This engagement came from us, it came from our own decision. Nobody asked us, you know, appointed us to, to do this or that. Or it came from us and um, it was very much value focused and purpose driven. And that was frankly amazing and enabled by digital. And from then on, I decided I would keep on uh, implementing that kind of approach to um, more challenges, to more opportunities in the service of the business, because I understood that was the way we could get senior management's attention. Mm. But it was so positive for people that I felt that could be the, the source of a win-win uh, situation where mm. the business, the organization uh, becomes better and does better business, but with that kind of engagement, but the people, the employees and customers and everybody else does better as well. And so I've been doing that for many years now through various experiments and uh, experiences. Some of them were completely like global over several continents gathering thousands of people and they all worked they all worked uh, uh, beyond expectations which made me think uh, it made me reflect on um, the current um, issues what prevents companies from from doing great from being great from enabling people really uh, and what uh, what they could do better so that's and the outcome of or the current state of my reflections based on all these experiences is now in the book mm. uh, the book is called dare to unlead and it was published uh, just uh, early may in the u.s end of june in the rest of the world and um yeah it's a it's a great source of conversation with readers mm. so wow there's a lot in there to that we can now go on and unpack mm -hmm. i want to take you back to the very beginning mm. So a girl in her early 20s from France has a desire to go to the Far East and experience it and takes an anthropological approach. So doesn't look for a global company to go and work for where, you know, you can speak your natural language and stuff. No, 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 no. Goes, moves in with a family learns the language and embraces the culture a real anthropological approach <laughs> and i'm just curious 
was there some relationship there to the fact that, and I'm going to make some assumptions here. So your parents were artists, art teachers. Mm. Was there like a bohemian experience in your family when you were growing up? That that spirit of exploration and and that sort of thing that drove that? You can definitely say that. Absolutely. Um, my parents are they're a bit elderly now. They were born in 1945, both of them. And they're just returning from a three-month uh, road trip in Greece where they slept in their car. <laughs> For three months, they've been sleeping in their car. Like, can you imagine? Like, who who else is doing that yeah. at this age when they don't have to, you know? Yeah. And uh, that's, that's the kind of people I've been growing up with, always on the move, always exploring. But also, I think that was, it was actually not my motivation, not what motivated me to, to go and explore. I knew they were supportive. I knew they were um, really, uh, yeah, supportive of this freedom. They've, uh, they've been enabling my sisters and I to be uh, we, we felt loved and stable enough that we could, you know, go out and wander in the world without feeling in jeopardy or, you know, anxious or, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. uh, and another thing is that I have been aware, I think, quite early of my privileges and I wanted to know what I was really capable of. Life has been sweet to me, very sweet. Uh, and I, I realized that from an early age and I thought mm, I want to experience um, a bit more hardship than what I've been used to for the first 23 years and so that's why I didn't choose a, a developed comfortable country uh, but rather went to a country that was still under um, big difficulties uh, so that uh, yeah things would not be too easy and I would see what I was uh, really made of, <laughs> mm -hmm. in a way. And what made me, what happened is through those connections, connections with those people who are so different from me, you know, my, my Vietnamese friends, and I say friends with a big F, um, those people with whom I've established so lasting connections. I mean, they, they last Till today, like 30 years after, we're still friends mm. and we still, uh, you know, we're still very fond of each other. And the power of this human connection beyond everything that differentiates us you know, for, in terms of, you know, social, culture, revenues, you name it, everything. Uh, our ways of thinking are different, etc. But this um, humanity in this warmth and this the pleasure of being together and of you know having a drink and 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 telling silly stories and you know that kind of thing is everywhere and give me great confidence in humanity yeah the, the power of uh, the, and the warmth and the depth of, of connections mm. all of those things that were important to human development before yeah. such things as borders and nationhood and nationalism and all of that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yes, and in yeah. organizations of bureaucracy, of segmentation, of uh, robotization of people, you know, where mm. we sort of have forgotten or dismissed the importance of relationships and we have sort of cultivated a very superficial approach to mm. relationships instead. 
considering that people are sort of cogs in the machine and that they can be, you know, replaced easily. Mm. And for a while it has worked. With the beginning of the yeah, the industrial revolution, all this has worked for a while, but I think it doesn't work anymore. I think we've entered an era where relationships have become all the more important now. Mm. We don't rely anymore on standardized, you know, products, mass production, you know, uh, we rely on customization, extreme individualization of needs. And that's where I, I feel, and the revolution of networks has uh, exacerbated uh, all that. I feel that uh, right now it's the, the relational aspect of commerce, of leadership, of, of everything that needs to be developed. Mm. Celine, I want to make an observation and if understand if, if there's a significance for you. You've used the word freedom mm. quite a number of times. And, and you said about your experience of going to Vietnam that you were aware of your privilege and that then coupled to norms and expectations that have developed in organizations since standardization, since the Industrial Revolution and, and the mechanization of work. Mm. And you could extend that to the mechanization of education perhaps as well. Absolutely. So I'm sensing that 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 awareness of privilege and that that thought that, OK, so so what am I not experiencing because of this privilege mm. and how do I free myself of this privilege so that I can get back to the basics of being human in the world with people? Mm. Am I close? Am I am I on the right track? Uh, I think, yes, you are. And there's an additional dimension, I feel, in the sense that um, I feel constraints need to be justified. And that's why I, I, I don't easily fit into a, a box, you know, a, a mold or um, my career has been one of a generalist, I've, I've switched and I've moved from uh, business to HR to something else, engagement, marketing, communication, it's a, a bit of everything. <laughs> it, it doesn't fit, you know, easily into a funnel. And that's why, and maybe because of my education as well with art teachers, you know, see, artists challenge the way people see the world. Huh? That's quite often a uh, the primary function of, of art huh? mm. and so um, I've been um, encouraged to challenge norms not in the sense of you know being an anarchist and you know wanting to challenge everything not at all but I feel that some constraints or habits are just products of the past and no longer make sense today and need to be revisited and there's no taboo for me there's no taboo we can you know revisit everything why not mm. you know some people are very afraid they, they'd rather stick to something they know and and feel very uncomfortable with the unknown it's not my case but i think the world is made of all these different perspectives all these different people and um and the best is to to connect and to do things together so that we better understand each other I think just talking with each other, just uh, trying to convince the other is a waste of time. 
uh, I don't think it um, it goes very far. Uh, but doing things together, like this activist movement I talked about in the beginning, got me work with people who were very different from me and whom I would probably have never approached in my professional life or even my personal life. And yet they were fired up by the same fire as I was. They too wanted to improve the culture, the organization. They too wanted to, you know, rolled up their sleeves and, uh, and were engaged and, and took risks. And, and I think around those common values, you can do, you know, a lot. Mm. And, th and I've seen that happen in every movement, uh, subsequent movement that I've been involved in. Mm. Uh, it's joint action in the service of a shared cause is a super powerful driver of community. Uh, it, it makes community. It's not just, you know, community sometimes is seen as a, almost as a territory, as a geography, you know, here's my community, like uh, my neighborhood is my community. And I, I don't think that's totally, I mean, it doesn't fit well with me. I'd rather see community as Mary Follett explained a hundred years ago, community as a process. And uh, she said, community is a creative process of integration. Mm. I, I love that definition. It's a process mm. that means it's an it's never you know ending. Yeah, it, it's a continuous process of integration of different perspectives in order to create something new, something mm. that uh, uh, that meets uh, people's expectations or some of that, or that creates this new world in which everybody has a space because they've they've all co-created it. Mm. That's my ideal. That's my ambition. I. I I hope to bring that to more, uh, many more organizations. Yeah. Do you know, it's funny, as you were talking and you were talking about like convention, mm. uh, I, I just had a, a flash image of your parents sleeping in the car because <laughs> convention says that you've got to book into a hotel, right? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But why does that need to be so? Yeah. Just because convention says so. And it's interesting because at the moment, my studies are around taking an anthropological approach to looking at organizations mm. to see what exists. Mm. So that kind of insider outsider perspective of question everything. Yeah. As you said, not to be anarchic about it or mm. challenging, but just, mm. okay, so this is what you do here. Mm. Why? Exactly. Because we've, done things for so long yeah that often we've forgotten the reason why we do them exactly and we don't challenge whether it's still necessarily the best thing for us to do in the here and now yeah exactly i'm thinking of education specifically there's a, a guy called sir ken robinson who did a, a few wonderful ted talks on it and he talked about how education in in the western world anyway is very much still in the industrial era mm. and as people progress through education we slowly start to educate them from further up their bodies mm. until eventually we're only educating their head and slightly mm. to one side of the head because we value science technology engineering and mathematics over you know the sciences and certainly over the arts mm. yep but it's at the level of the arts where we are as human beings able to express ourselves Exactly. The arts yeah. and humanities in general. Mm. 
and, and uh, it pains me to see the smaller and smaller place dedicated to a priority um, focused on, on humanities. It's as if uh, the whole world could run on, on math and algorithms and uh, engineering. I absolutely don't believe it. Well, that's, it's working out well for us so far, isn't it? As I'm it thinking has. of social media. Yeah, it has. Well, has it? Uh, I, I was it was a very much a tongue-in-cheek comment I exactly have to say. exactly yeah. yeah yeah no you're right and uh, and you can see in uh, organizations facing issues tend to want to solve them through solutioneering mm. so sort of engineering applied to everything you know mm. solutioneering finding solutions uh, and um, and technology oh let's invent a device that will do this and that instead of uh, hmm, why don't we get together <laughs> yeah. with, with the people who experience you know, most or are closest to this or that challenge and, and brainstorm together mm. and create an environment where people are not afraid to speak up, uh, to join whatever discussion, co-creation opportunity there is. Mm. It, it takes more time and it, it takes more commitment from leaders, personal commitment. Yeah. Uh, and bravery yes because we're yes. stepping outside of our comfort zone yes absolutely mm. absolutely yeah it's uh, some of them get it totally and others i don't know what happens i don't know if they don't see or, or if they are completely cynical about things i still don't know maybe mm. both bo both sorts exist some people are i think blinded by their own privileges and the fact that they are surrounded by people who tell them what they want to hear. They're completely isolated from the rest of the organization, especially from the shop front line, shop floor, and so on. You can see that in all uh, studies, uh, all surveys, people at the top of an organization always, always have a rosier view of what happens as compared to people on the front line, mm. always. Mm. <laughs> it's mm. quite quite funny so mm. either problems don't you know uh climb up <laughs> up to them uh or they just live in another world you know it's uh comfortable they're detached from reality i don't know uh but it, but it's a concern and it's mm. a problem and that's why i one of the one of the solutions i recommend is to connect the system to more of itself to um not remove hierarchy, hierarchy is needed, but remove the bottlenecks that prevent information from flowing easily in the system so that the, the matter is for the system to become more intelligent and more complex mm. in order to respond better and faster to the external complexity, which is increasing, you know, every day. Yeah. Uh, but still, we, you can see this uh, sort of um, temptation to simplify, to order, uh, to um, put everything in, uh, you know, in line, to streamline things in, mm. internally and to segment. Uh, There's still a very strong hierarchical segmentation, extremely strong uh, in, in most organizations and a functional one of course the, the functional silos have been identified for a very long time but the social stratification the hierarchical silos is almost never discussed mm. we, we pretend it doesn't exist or we pretend it's not a problem but yes it's a problem and a very big one yeah yeah i've read a book recently called the silo effect by Gillian tett um 
and and it, it's a great book to talk about how how silos so easily develop and why they develop because sometimes mm. they develop for very good reasons yep. but they get out of control mm. and they start to rule the organization and it becomes yeah. the system um, and then it starts to break down because the organization isn't able to respond to external mm. threats and what you often find with organizations when they get into a, a struggling situation is they double down harder on what they've always done mm. and then frustrate that why isn't that working anymore mm. without necessarily being able to helicopter out of it and go okay so how do we need to be able to adapt to deal mm. with whatever this external threat is um Celine yeah. I want to come back to because when you were talking about the pharmaceutical company there was a lot of parallels there for me because I work in in construction in the UK, mm. particularly rail construction, which is incredibly heavily regulated. Uh, and I see every day very simple challenges like we have designers mm. and designers are by their nature quite creative people. Mm. But they are hammered into this conformance to standards. And I see on a psychological level, I see sometimes within them as individuals, the struggle that they have between their natural creative instincts mm. and this need to conform to all of these standards and, and what that kind of removes in terms of their human creativity. Mm. And that can often lead to, you quite often see among designers, a lot of burnout and disillusionment and stuff, but also the, the other part I've seen to it is we've for the last mm, probably seriously about 15 years have been looking at health and safety mm. from a behaviors perspective okay mm. and we've got all of these behavioral safety programs and training and models and all of this sort of thing which is more or less trying to encourage the individual to creatively think about the risks that might exist around them. Mm. Yet, whilst operating in this heavily regulated industry that dictates what clothes you wear in terms of personal protective equipment, dictates what hours you work, dictates what equipment you use, dictates mm. all of this stuff, dictates how you live your own life because you know, we're quite rightly, we're subject to, to drugs and alcohol checks. Of course, of course, yeah. But it has an impact on our lives, on our yeah. social lives. A lot of the work happens at night. Mm. So again, that's another thing. So yeah. again, I'm seeing this conflict between trying to take a creative approach to something within this heavily constrained. And a lot of this constraint, as I, I feel it, is it's so it's unconscious at this stage mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we're not even aware of it because we've been mm -hmm. doing it for so long when you first introduced this the letter and it started to gather the momentum what did you experience in terms of behaviors within the organization mm -hmm. around this let's call it a, maybe it's a clumsy word but let's call it a challenge to the convention mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what was your experience of the behaviors around that uh, there were multiple behaviors. Uh, there were um, the early adopters, the enthusiasts, uh, definitely. Um, there was a, a large group of people who looked at it with suspicion. 
um, some mocked us and said, you know, well, you're, you're the agitators, you know, you're the, uh, or the, the feminists or the, you know, trying to, uh, <laughs> to, to, how can I say, uh, water down or, or curb our enthusiasm with sarcasm and, and, you know, little jokes. And there were the, those who were the cynics who said, you know, you can try whatever you want. Things will never change here. And they were the indifference, the people who just didn't care. I have no time for that. You know, I'm not interested. And there's like everything else. There's this, uh, the, the law of diffusion, you know, the uh, Rogers law, which is uh, an interesting element to take into account. You cannot convince or engage a large group of people overnight. It never happens this way, never. Uh, it, it goes one conversation at a time. Mm. It goes one activist to, you know, inspire other people, mm-hmm. one conversation at a time. And uh, and it's fine, it's fine. I'd, I'd rather take a bit longer to start, create, increase, create engagement that way in a peer-to-peer fashion. I'd rather take more time to do that uh, rather than not enough because then you know that adoption will be higher because people will have come from their own will. And this freedom I talked about in the beginning is a key enabler of performance. And not just for uh, white collars, you know, executives, for everybody. Everybody resents the fact that they are limited in their behaviors and actions in the workplace. Everybody wants to create their own life. Everybody, uh, even those on the front line, on the shop floor, working in factories, even them. And when we offer zero space for it, when we imagine that people will you know, happily work as if they were robots, we make a cruel mistake, a a huge mistake. And this mistake is actually the source of burnout, of these burnout epidemics in the workplace. Yeah, uh, burning out from uh, from this absence of agency, Mm. from this uh, extremely high level of of norms and, and constraints put on them. And what I suggest is not to remove the norms and like and invite everybody to do whatever they want. This is absolutely not what I suggest. The idea is to create more space for people's agency in the service of a common cause or purpose, which is being discussed by the people, which is being co-created by the people, ideally. So not something that is bombarded to them from from the the board or or some consultant externally. And um, creating more space and regularly, again, community is a process, on a regular basis, very often, continuous dialogue around what's happening, what's happening to us, what do we need to do, and, and how should we do it? So revisiting on a perpetual basis the how are we together and how do we work together instead of uh, doing it once and then taking it for granted that everybody will just execute because mm. this doesn't work. Mm. So if as a small business owner, I was to engage with you, actually, before I go to that, 
I just want to honor the fact that what you said about the law of diffusion of innovation, actually what you did was you embraced your early adopters because mm -hmm. when you were talking earlier, you very much spoke about we mm. and those initial contacts, those messages that you got, you, you know, you, you embraced a number of those people to start this movement. Exactly. Yeah. I think this is a key factor. And while talking about this, I kept in mind the large um, mobilization I created around uh, quality, quality improvement, because and your earlier comment on safety was very much uh, in tune with, with this experience. The fact is you need to be a community in the beginning in order to create a community. A single person cannot create a community. You need to plant the seeds of community right from the beginning. So when I sometimes hear um, individuals telling me, oh, I want to create a community, I'm like, mm -mm. <laughs> find someone, someone, people, several people, and go talk with them about what you could create together instead. A single person community is, um, is an audience. It's not a community. Do you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking about the traditional manifestation of a leader, an organizational leader I have in my head, standing at the top of a town hall meeting, explaining that the, you know, the organization is going through a bit of a turbulent time at the moment and we're all in it together. Mm -hmm. And by the way, we're gonna have to make some of you redundant or we're gonna have to cut wages or cut hours or whatever it might be. But, you know, we're all in it together. We, you know, you are my community. Yeah, and I'm and I'm paid 320 times more than the average person in this group. Yeah, yeah. We're not in here together at all. <laughs> so I'm a small business owner and I want to engage you. How practically, how does it work? So I want you to come in and, and, and help us with creating momentum around getting some uh, innovative thinking and creativity around uh, let's say quality how we manifest our quality and, and we want to get some diversity in there um, of ideas and thoughts and ways of doing things and we want to get we want it to be a more inclusive thing mm. how does it practically work do you do you get the organization to set up a steering group how will we work together so now that i've written a book i would invite the ceo to read the book first Okay. And see whether he or she is really interested in this. Because I, and I speak from experience. Before having the book, I engaged uh, or I started working with companies, and one in particular I remember, uh, which apparently was in the same line of thought, but practically was absolutely not. Uh, I was still uh, very much attached to its uh, cascading, waterfall, uh, top down. Uh, extremely hierarchical and directing kind of work, uh, which is uh, really not my thing, not just in terms of preference, but in terms of efficiency. I think this is, this is not working. Unfortunately, this company had results from other, because it, it sucked a lot of um, public money. So it, it was not, I would say, in problems enough. <laughs> I was not experiencing, you know, the urgency enough, I would say, to really uh, feel the need to, to leverage its all talent, its all potential. It was still relying on um, a CEO or and a board group 
that felt they were superior to everybody else in the company. They knew better because they were higher hierarchically. Hmm. When in fact, we know it doesn't mean anything. Uh, the fact that you're higher in the hierarchy doesn't mean you know better, especially in our knowledge economy, where more and more managers manage people who know better than them, yeah. <laughs> you know, from a technical standpoint or um, expertise or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so the point is not that you know better as you climb the hierarchy and the ladder. The point is that you all have different perspectives. We are all experts of our own job, of our own context, of our own environment. And so the key is really to connect those different perspectives so that they make sense together. And we hear from all of us. We don't just you know, give a voice to a few people or just the experts or the leaders, but we connect all different perspectives as much as possible. So back to your question, what I would do is after this the CEO and executive team has read the book and, and find themselves in agreement with those, uh, those values, uh, then I would invite them to create partnership with a small group of people representing the diversity of their ecosystem the ecosystem they are trying to engage needs to be on the design table right from the start. And then it's with this design group, I would say, representative of the diversity and people who are truly volunteers, not mm. appointed people. That's very, yeah, very no important. coercion. Mm. No. So I would, uh, I would have discussions with those people to check whether they are really interested in, in contributing. Mm. And then we would together with this group decide, uh, what we need to do, how we need to operate and, uh, and what comes next. So along the, the lines, um, designed in the book offered in the book, which are organized around three values. I would, uh, I would probably design something with the group again, not, uh, not just a single person or not just me and the CEO, for example, but we would design things together around those values of agency, how to mobilize, how to develop personal agency, create more space in the organization for innovation and, and accountability. Uh, the second line would be, how do we network? The organization more uh, and not just inside huh? but maybe outside with its uh, i don't know suppliers or regulators uh, you name it but again connecting the system to more of itself to offer this diversity of perspectives and make sense together and then the third line would be this community building how do we build community and this in my opinion can be done through joint action so sort of activist uh, developing an activist mindset in an organization so that people want to join the movement, right? Mm -hmm. It's interesting when you were talking earlier about it's not anarchic, it's not, it's not being an agitator. Mm -hmm. And even the word activist has sometimes certainly yes. in this part of the world, quite significant connotations. Yeah. Yeah. organizations hear about activism and they think it's going to be some sort of a, a an employee uprising <laughs> yeah exactly mm. <laughs> exactly and yeah. and i i sometimes i have sometimes in the past used this this word definitely in as a matter of provocation <laughs> I yeah think, uh, 
provocation is uh, uh, can be interesting. It can trigger, you know, like interesting discussions, and it expands a little bit the space for what we consider possible. Or you know, so it, it challenges perspectives a little bit. Uh, but activism is um, is interesting beyond its provocative nature for two reasons. First, it has uh, action at its core. Activist is being in action. It's it's being in movement. And very often you see organizations stuck in status quo where people analyze, write reports, uh, but that's no action. That's no they, they produce little, very little value from that. It's it's a paralysis by analysis, you know. Uh, mm. And they spend a lot of money doing it. Absolutely. And bring in consultants that say every exactly the same that uh, the previous consultant said three years ago, and then nothing has changed because the people's identities have not changed. Those This collective identity has not changed. And so the, the whole thing remains this stable, mediocre bureaucracy that offers no surprise, but that offers the, the comfort of stability and predictability. Mm. So activists... This activism thing brings this idea of action, of movement, of let's set ourselves into action. So I, I really like this this um, commonality, this this action mm. um, concept. And the other reason why activist is important is that we have a lot to learn from from activist movements, from actual social movements. You know, we can think of anything, uh, the human rights movement, women's rights movement, etc., you name it. Those movements have managed to gather large groups of people over a long period of time and have managed to have an impact. And there's a lot to learn from them that can be applied in the workplace. Mm. Uh, and that offer this, um, the, the huge benefit of mobilizing people without a super heavy infrastructure of you know communication or control or large you know movements coalesce sometimes it's uh, people wonder you know how does it happen they they don't have like a chief corporate communicator for example and don't, they don't have you know all that infrastructure for communication and yet they manage to they're very agile they're very how how do they do well that's that's what I've been studying for many years now, and uh, and that's what I've been um, trying to import in the workplace, again, in the service of business objectives. Let's not forget that. It's not about focusing on, on culture alone. Culture improvement is a byproduct of what I suggest. It's a, it's a nice uh, consequence, but the main goal, which is, uh, again, always achieved is performance improvement mm. but it's economic and human performance at the same time mm. the motivation for the book dare to unlead talk to us a little bit about the inspiration for that writing a book is quite a big undertaking what drove you to to want to do that at the beginning there was this need for me to understand why what i saw along all those years worked why did it work? I knew it worked. Uh, I knew people were engaged. I knew they were delivering exceptional performance that way. Um, unseen, unprecedented performance in all sorts of different settings. So I knew it worked, but I wanted to know why it worked. 
So my first desire was to explore and to understand. So I've been through a lot of different disciplines, through uh, you know, sociology, politics, uh, psychology, you name it, everything, in order to try to understand what makes this uh, this approach is uh, large mobilization uh, connection and, and community building approach work and the second uh, motivation was to explain better than what i could do in a few words or through a few stories because again i wanted to be very clear on what i what i offer because it's it's not without risks and i'm i'm aware of that and I, I feel I owe that to potential you know, clients and, and anyone who's interested to learn from that. We need to learn, we need to see what's in there, what we need to give up, but also what we gain from that approach. And I think that there's a very strong imbalance. <laughs> we give up a little and we gain a lot. And, um, and finally, a, a third motivation was um, for me to try contributing to finding solutions to our huge social fragmentation, which I think everybody is suffering from. We are very divided in many countries, in the UK, in the US, uh, in France. Uh, there's a stronger and stronger divisions between affiliations, politics, people who believe in uh, vaccines and and those who don't for example there there's so many lines of division and i have lost hope a little bit in politics to solve that but i still have a lot of hope in the workplace i think the workplace is one of the last places where we do meet people who are very different from us and we spend eight hours a day there there's a very obvious common objective for people working in an organization okay it's, it's to make this organization successful so it's um, it's a wonderful space and opportunity to recreate community bonding um, mutual understanding uh, which i respect which i think will be extremely beneficial to society if we are mm. serious about it and not just serious about earning as much money as possible mm. yeah Thank you. But my my uh, solution, what I suggest, uh, has this uh, nice benefit that it also provides uh, economic performance. Yeah. I just wish this performance was better split among people, better shared. Yeah, it's interesting because I feel like we're on the edge of something. I mean, in the world that we have these challenges, these existential challenges that are occurring largely around climate change but also about how we are with each other as humans it's mad to think that in 2022 we're still we still have sanctioned murder of people in wars and, and other methods we've learned nothing in tens of thousands of years of evolution however my hope without getting totally despondent my hope is that, so I have no sense that po politics or nationhood or flags or anthems or borders will solve the existential crises. Mm. But I do personally hold hope that society and community will take much more of a, a lead. And I see that as a three-headed thing between organizations, 
educators and community groups because we are a community within our organizations and our organizations are part of the wider community and education is also part of that community because if organizations can take more of a responsibility in education we might get much more rounded uh, solid individuals this, the psychological and mental health and well-being issues that we've got. I mean, how can it be that we are probably statistically in the most safe and prosperous time in humanity's existence? Yeah. And yet the, the psychological yeah. issues are off the scale. And, and those people are carrying that into our organizations there's a cycle there's a vicious cycle there that we need to break somehow yeah. and i think organizations can really take the lead but that that requires bravery and it requires will it does it does mm. that's why i titled my book dare to unlead uh, and dare to break free from this traditional approach of uh, of leadership where you know, the leader stands above everybody else and and everybody else expects uh, instructions and guidance from the leaders. And it's also a very comfortable uh, position. So what I suggest is uh, instead to consider leadership as a collective capacity. It's a collective capacity that needs to be nurtured. It's not a set of, you know, superpowers um, that are reserved to certain exceptional individuals. I think this, this is wrong, this is toxic, and this is absolutely not helpful. But considering leadership as a collective capacity that needs to be nurtured, that strives on diversity, that um, requires development of relational capabilities, Developing this relational capacity within the organization, this social capital, and um, all building all that, this sense of community around shared action, I think that's a, that's a much more promising way than this uh, endless cultivation of the leader myth, uh, which is completely misleading, which is a, an ideology which has long stopped serving us. Mm, yeah, it sure has. Celine, is there anything in particular that you had wanted to talk about that we haven't touched on yet? Nothing that I can think of right now. I think it's a, it's a super rich conversation. I, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, what I say is maybe 70% of what I wish I could say if I was a native English speaker. But uh, I think those 75% is already good enough. <laughs> you get my point, I think. Well, well, I, I, I apologize if my French was better. We, we, we could have the conversation in French and get that remaining 25% out there. <laughs> but I really encourage you and all the listeners to get the book and read it. The book is uh, really super nicely written. It's not just because of me, but uh, it has gone through four pairs of expert eyes, uh, editors and uh, copy editors, etc., who've done a beautiful work, like superb, really superb work. And so the book is a bit uh, thick. It's a dense read, but but it offers also lots of stories and practical examples, etc. So I think it's uh, rather easy. It's a nice summer read, I would say. <laughs> mm. And we'll um, we'll ping some on the show notes. We'll put some links to where the book can be purchased from. 
so people have listened to this podcast and they they want to know more and mm. obviously they're going to buy the book how do they access you you're you've got a website social media so yes i'm quite active on social media on linkedin on twitter i have a website called we need social.com we need social used to be the title of my blog when i set up a blog uh, in 2013 uh, the blog was um an attempt to have my own voice, uh, to regain my own voice, to make space for my own my own perspectives. Because uh, when you're in a big company, it's easy to um, just conform to the rule of silence. Mm? There are a few authorized spokespersons and that's all. Uh, but I felt other perspectives were necessary as well. And so I, I was encouraged by friends and I'm, I'm glad I dared to create that blog a long time ago, which is which has become my my website. So we need social. I wanted a we. I wanted a, something collective. I wanted a verb, a, a verb that was, you know, not just a, a statement, but a verb of action. So we mm. need and social, those social connections, um, the social capital that needs to be nurtured. And of course, if your listeners uh, happen to be in Lyon, well, let's grab a glass of wine together. <laughs> I love that. Well, that's an invitation. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is very much. We will obviously put uh, all your uh, social media links and your website links and everything in the show notes as well so that people can easily access you. Thank you. I feel like I need a, a beautiful conclusion to all our conversation and everything you shared and your brave experience and um, your book as well and all your knowledge. Can you give us a sentence of what your uh, mission is at the moment? Oh, my mission. I feel my mission is to help people regain dignity at work. I feel this very deeply. I feel that the lack of dignity for people at work, for some people at work, but many of them, has uh, created this social crisis we're in right now, this psychological breakdown of people, this great uh, resignation, you know, phenomenons that uh, the, the pandemic has um, exacerbated and highlighted very deeply. And um, I think there's a, there's another way we can make work pleasant and uh, enjoyable and relationships with colleagues and relationships with managers. It doesn't have to be this crisis and dehumanization and humiliation that is the uh, common experience of uh, billions of people around the world. I think we can do better and we should do better. I think it's a, it's a responsibility that we educated, you know, privileged people have on this planet. We have to make work better for everybody else, not just for ourselves. Mm. Oh, wow. I love it. I just want to come and work with you. <laughs> <laughs> if we can work as networks, I think there's a, there's a lot of value in that. Yeah, and I would go even deeper than that and say that we have to. It's mm. the next big evolution. Yeah. We had the cognitive revolution. We had the agricultural revolution. We had the industrial revolution. And we need something else. Because not to, not to be too dramatic about it, but I, I sense that the survival of the human species depends upon it. Mm. You're probably right. 
Wow. Okay. <laughs> you know, I'm an optimist. I think we will we will manage. We will find ways. The youth has uh, tremendous energy. They have ideas. They they speak up. Uh, of course, as I think every generation, they uh, tend to believe when they're young that they do have the solutions and that their solutions are better than those of previous generations which have contributed to all this mess. They are not totally wrong, but they're not completely right either. I think that the issue is to include everybody. Is to we, we need everybody to work together, all generations, all countries, all you know statuses, all social yeah, status, whatever. We, we need everybody. Uh, we can't just rely on a few experts to solve problems for everybody else. Maybe mm. the experts believe they can, but we know from the um, you know electoral situation, for example, from um, issues with populism, except we know it's not true. We know people resent being talked at, uh, or being addressed as if they were dumb. We we need to find other ways, other solutions, and. Again, I feel that uh, part of the solution is in the workplace. And um, I'm confident. I'm confident. And besides, there's no other way. <laughs> mm. um, there's no other way. So we, mm. have to, we have to do better. And we can. Mm. And we will. And we will. <laughs> yeah. Celine, thank you so much. It's been a beautifully rich conversation. Thank you, Ray. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. We will follow you keenly. Yes, we will. Uh, and it will be mutual. I'll be really happy to stay in touch. Thank you so much, Celine. Thank you. Thank you both. Can you handle the load that you were meant to carry? Cause we're on a mission, listen, it's beyond description We don't want to fit in if we're living in a contradiction We need a brand of passion that you can't imagine Don't hesitate